Ezekiel in the chapter 16 then, this evening, Ezekiel in the chapter 16. We pick up the reading this, this evening on the verse 35, Ezekiel in the chapter 16 in the verse 35. The Word of God says, Wherefore, O harlot, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God, because thy filthiness was poured out, and thy nakedness discovered through thy whoredoms with thy lovers, and with all the idols of thy abominations, and by the blood of thy children which thou didst give unto them. Behold, therefore, I will gather all thy lovers with whom thou hast taken pleasure, and all them that thou hast loved with all them that thou hast hated. I will even gather them round about against thee, and will discover thy nakedness unto them, that they may see all thy nakedness. And I will judge thee as women that break wedlock, and shed blood are judged. And I will give thee blood and fury and jealousy. And I will also give thee into their hand, and they shall throw down thine eminent place, and shall break down thy high places. They shall strip thee also of thy clothes, and I shall take thy fair jewels, and leave thee naked and bare. They shall also bring up a company against thee, and they shall stone thee with stones, and thrust thee through with their swords. They shall burn thine houses with fire, and execute judgments upon thee in the sight of many women. And I will cause thee to cease from playing the harlot, and thou also shall give no hire any more. So will I make my fury toward thee to rest, and my jealousy shall depart from thee, and I will be quiet." And will be no more angry, because thou hast remembered the days of thy youth, but hast fretted uh, me in all these things. Behold, therefore I also will recompense thy way upon thine head, saith the Lord God. And thou shalt not commit this lewdness above all thine abominations. We'll end our reading there at the verse 43, but we will, of course, be making our way through the remainder of the chapter. For us, we recommenced our studies last week. We came to this 16th chapter in the book of Ezekiel, and we noted how that we came to consider a man with a message, a man sent by God, indeed with a message from God. That's what we've been partaking of both uh, last uh, Tuesday evening and God willing in the moments that lie before us, we're partaking of that which truly is a message from God himself. You remember, of course, that we noted that Ezekiel primarily ministered to the people of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, during the days of division. Ezekiel never had, nonetheless, a message for all Hebrews. For that which he communicates, and especially as we come to this chapter before us in chapter 16, it's indeed a message which is poignant for the entire nation. As noted last week, it is a message in which he highlights the vileness of their sin and the vastness of the grace and the mercy of their God, our God. In verses 1 through 6, we noted how he remarked upon her beginnings. A nation called out from among the heathen nations, 
a nation that although despised and hated by the other nations of this world, nevertheless had a very special place in the heart of God, a very special place in the plan of God, and would one day have a very special person in the, the, the person of God ruling in their midst. Then we came to seven, uh, verses 7 through 14. How in these verses he recounted her many blessings. Now remember, this whole account was a parable. It tells a story of an unwanted, abandoned, and unloved female child. One who, despite a sentence of death, knew life. All because of the passing by of one who had compassion on her. And so she was blessed. Not only in the life that was given to her, but also in the position that was granted to her. For as she grew and flourished and blossomed into a young woman of beauty and renown, this male benefactor who who had passed by her in her infancy went on then to marry her and claimed her as his own. She enjoyed the finest of lifestyles. She received the finest of gifts. And she knew the finest of prospects. But then we came to verse 15. And the little word, but. Another but of Scripture, but an entirely negative one. Despite all of the compassion that was evident in the opening verses, despite the grace, despite the love that was showered upon her, she played the harlot. She was not true to her first love. Pride entered in, and she soon was thinking that all her success and popularity, indeed her very prospects, were all down entirely to her own self and to her own efforts. She fell victim to that pride. And that pride soon corrupted her heart. It made her heart weak, according to verse 30. Because of a weak heart, the whole life was affected. And she became a lady of disrepute, one who was wholly given over to a lifestyle of self-gratification, all characterized by the lustful pursuing of anyone, indeed anything. Loyalty and devotion were replaced by adultery and idolatry. Beauty and renown were replaced by filth and shame. Wealth and luxury were replaced by poverty and squalor. This section that we referred to in verses 15 through 34 last week, we term simply as her backslidings. Remember, this whole parable was symbolic of Israel's history. This was God's summary of the life of the nation thus far. How that despite blessing them, how that despite loving them, caring for them, how despite calling them by name, setting his love upon them, indeed marrying them, they turned their back on him. They squandered their privilege, their position, their prospects. They went to whoring after other gods, entering into bonds and leagues and covenants with other heathen nations. Oh, how great was Israel's sin! How great was the pain in the heart of God because of that sin. How great was the tragedy they had arrived at because of that sin. 
And so continuing in this great chapter, this great parable, we pick up our thoughts here at the verse 35 this evening. And tonight we notice firstly his retribution. That's given to us in verses 35 through 43. Verses 35 through 43, those verses that we've just read together. But notice there in the outset of verse 35, it all pivots upon one word. Wherefore? Wherefore, O harlot, hear the word of the Lord? Because of all that's been summarized in verses 15 through 34, wherefore? Now, reading that word, I'll admit to you something a little personal. Understanding what all these verses come to mean as well conveyed a sentiment that I was all too aware of from my childhood days. Because I heard all too often as a little boy, because of my exemplary behavior in church, that I was going to get what for. (laughs) It didn't matter what night it was, what the occasion was, I was always the worthy recipient of what for. Now, the funny thing is, that word doesn't exist in the King's English. And so I could turn you to a dictionary tonight, but I wouldn't be able to turn you to a written definition for that word. But boy, oh boy, could I give you my own definition of that word. (laughs) Because I'll leave it up to your imagination tonight, But suffice to say that everything that followed was administered with the old chestnut, this hurts me more than it hurts you. (laughs) But all things considered, that's exactly what's being spoken of in this section. God is saying to Israel, because of your behavior, because of your backsliding, because of your sin, You're going to get what for? And are we really surprised? After reading what we've read and our reading tonight, after recalling what we read together in the verses 15 through verse 34 last Tuesday evening, how God's chosen people, God's called out and set apart nation, God's witnesses and ambassadors to their generation how they had gone so far away from everything he desired for them. They were a nation defiled, a nation defamed, a nation destitute and forlorn. Judgment could no longer be deferred. The holiness and the justice of God demanded a response. God's response was swift. It was sobering. It was significant. Despite the very evident pain that taints these words of judgment as we read through this chapter, we must hold at the very forefront of our minds this truth. God was not going to be mocked. He never afflicts willingly, we're told in Scripture, but afflict He will when faced with unrepentant, unwielding, seemingly unconcerned attitudes amongst his own, when warnings are unheeded, when appeals are ignored, when invitations are rejected, then judgment is the only way 
Notice how in verse 38, how the one who was undoubtedly her husband now stands as her judge. I will judge thee. The same heart that loved was the same heart which condemned. And yes, that may seem unreconcilable to us. That may be a paradox unexplainable to us. That may seem a circle that's hard to square. But such is the mystery of divine wrath and divine grace. Reflecting upon it as believers in the New Testament age, surely it brings into sharp focus the great unparalleled truth of Calvary. For there in that cross, righteousness and peace kissed each other. Love and faithfulness met together. The heart which called for justice and light of the law because of all that we had done was the same heart that was willing to bestow peace, true peace, through the death of His Son. And tonight we know not condemnation, but rather we rejoice in salvation, for we are saved, eternally saved, from the wrath to come. But here in this passage, God stands and proclaims to a nation who have spurned His advances, who have rejected His love, who have been deaf to His call, Israel, you are now going to receive the just reward for all that you have done against me. All this I have done for you, but now you'll face the consequences of your choices, the results of your backslidings, the end of your pride. Notice in verse 36 where he says, Thus saith the Lord God, because thy filthiness was poured out, thy nakedness discovered, through thy whoredoms, with thy lovers, and with all the idols of thy abominations, and by the blood of thy children, which thou didst give unto them. He knew the full extent of their sin. There was nothing hid from him. He goes on in verse 37 to say, Behold, therefore, I will gather all thy lovers with whom thou hast taken pleasure, and I will discover thy nakedness unto them, that they may see all thy nakedness. He promised to expose that sin. All that they'd thought was done in a dark corner, all that they'd thought no one else had recognized or identified, God said, I'm going to expose it all. In verse 38, he goes on to say, I will judge thee. As women that break wedlock and shed blood are judged, I will give thee blood and fury and jealousy. He's going to execute his wrath upon them. Verse 39, he says that he'll permit their land to be ransacked. I will give thee also into their hand, and they'll throw down thine eminent place, break down thy high places, strip thee of thy clothes, take thy fair jewels, leave thee naked and bare. They're going to be ransacked as a nation. Verse 40, he says, he will allow them to experience death and suffering. They're going to get stoned. They're going to get thrust through with swords. There'll be many casualties amongst them. Look in verse 41 and verse 42, how he says, they shall burn thine houses with fire, execute judgments upon thee in the sight of many women, and I will cause thee to cease from playing the harlot, and thou shalt also give no hire any more. 
so will I make my fury toward thee to rest. The immediate prospect was that he was going to expend the extent of his wrath and judgment upon them. But there at the end of verse 42, we see the first glimmer of hope. Because despite the wrath that was built up and was now about to be poured out, the psalmist reminds us that he will not always chide. Neither will he keep his anger forever. Here's proof of it. The anger was going to be poured out, but that fury would know its rest one day. There's a glint of hope. Just a glimmer of hope through that dark, dark prophecy. Verse 43, he goes on to remind them that he's not indifferent to sin. He's not a God who accommodates sin. He is, if you will, washing his hands of them in that moment and saying, all of this is on you. I had no part in it. I will have no part in it. I can have no part in it. Surely all of this is a reminder of a well-rehearsed statement that was given by a theologian many, many years ago when he said, God will make him who leaves God for the world disgraced in even the eyes of the world. And indeed, the more so, the nearer he formally stood to himself. That's what exactly is being done upon Judah here, the southern kingdom, the Israelite people. God was disgracing them and even the eyes of the world with whom they now identified. Believer, tonight all of this is a warning to you. It's a warning to me. It's very clear evidence of the retribution of God and his holy, righteous anger. But notice not only his retribution, but notice secondly in verses 44 through 52, their resemblance. Their resemblance. This whole section that we come to is used to validate this pronouncement of judgment. Just in case someone thought it was worth trying to defend Israel God furnishes us with a synopsis that is legal in its analysis, total in its summation, and final in its conclusion. And it's all encapsulated in this proverb, found at the end of verse 44. As is the mother, so is her daughter. As is the mother, so is her daughter. Brittle, you may say. Scary, you may say. Truth, God says. It reminds him, just as you found your beginnings among the tribes of Canaan, so now you have exemplified and indeed exceeded their behavior, exceeded their sin. Read in verse 46, Thine elder sister is Samaria, she and her daughters that dwell at thy left hand, and thy younger sister that dwelleth at thy right hand is Sodom, and her daughters, yet 
Hast thou not walked after their ways, nor done after their abominations, but as if that were a very little thing, thou wast corrupted more than they all in their ways. Israel, when it comes to sin, when it comes to shame, when it comes to provoking the Holy One of Israel, you're in a league all of your own. Look in verse 48, As I live, saith the Lord God, Sodom thy sister hath not done, she nor her daughters as thou hast done, thou and thy daughters. You're in a league all of your own. He makes a direct comparison here between the people of the southern kingdom, the people identified as Judah. He makes a direct comparison between their behavior, their sin, and what was known in Sodom. Look in verse 49, he says, Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. Pride, fullness of bread, abundance of idleness was in her, and in her daughters neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. They were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore I took them away as I saw good. He reminds them that in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, that Sodom was a city full of pride. It was a city in which the pride of life, the lust of the eyes, and the sinful desires of the heart abounded in the lives of every man, woman, and child. It was a city that was intent of seeking after its own, and only its own. It was a city that was marked by the cult of materialism, and this materialism was its ultimate downfall. Judah, note this, I took them away. I dealt with them. They would not heed my warnings. Even amongst them, the life of righteous Lot was not an example that they chose to follow. They went down, deep down. And I dealt with them accordingly. Then he goes on in verse 51 to speak of Samaria. This is a northern kingdom. The other part of Israel, if you will. But the other part that's already known the judgment of God. And he says, when it comes to the northern kingdom of people, I have already judged. He says, neither has Samaria committed half of thy sins. But thou hast multiplied thine abominations more than they, and hast justified thy sisters in all thine abominations which thou hast done. He's speaking here of a people who have received the just reward for their transgressions. And in doing so, he's reminding Judah, they didn't plumb to half the depths that you have. They didn't transgress to half the level that you have. Judah, you're worse than they ever were. You wagged your finger, you shook your head at their shame. But Judah, you're worse much worse. It goes on in verse 52 to say, Thou also which hast judged thy sisters, bear thine own shame because of thy sins. He stood in condemnation of the northern kingdom in days gone past, but now look how far you have fallen. Because of the depths of the sin that you have gone to, because of all the wickedness, the shame, and dishonor you have brought, you have justified Samaria. You have justified Sodom. You have made them look better 
all because of what you have done, Judah. Look at what he says at the end of verse 52. They are more righteous than now. Why? Back up to the beginning of verse 52. Because of the sins that thou hast committed more abominable than they. They are more righteous than thou. Yea, be thou confounded also. Bear thy shame in that thou hast justified thy sisters. What a sobering thought. What an unexpected reality is now entered in. The wicked city of Sodom is now justified when put against and standing up in light of the nation of Judah. That place that God rained fire and brimstone upon. That place that the angels were sent to rescue Lot and his family from because the judgment of God was going to fall. Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? Now, in contrast to Judah, they're small fry. They look like the saints in comparison to what God sees going on in the southern kingdom. When it comes to who has been worse, Judah, you win, and you win by a country mile. But thou mayest bear thine own shame, verse 54. Mayest be confounded in all thou hast done, in that thou art a comfort unto them. Without seeking to be dramatic tonight and without seeking to spiritualize the text, may I ask a question? Is not all that we have read a testimony to our own nation tonight? Well, yes, we've lived three days in which we've witnessed the death and burial of a sovereign. One who, for all intents and purposes, sought to live by and promote the Word of God throughout the days of her reign. But setting all that aside and focusing our eyes upon the kingdom over which she ruled, is it not true that Christian Britain is rotten to its core tonight? Are we not a nation that is also consumed by our pride? Are we not a nation who rely on our academic brilliance, our financial paresse, our military might, all at the expense of relying upon God? Have we not as a nation so easily forgotten and so soon forgotten the blessings of God and days of discovery and empire building? Have we not forgotten the blessing and protection of God in days of war? Have we not forgotten the place that we once held in the world of being the home of the English Bible? The place where the Protestant faith was most seen and visible. The place in which gospel preaching has always been promoted and defended. We've forgotten our place that we were once the home of missionaries. Missionaries who traveled far and near bearing the good news of the Bible. So that not only was it true 
to say that the sun didn't set upon the lands of the British Empire, but it was also true to say that the sun never set upon the gospel being shared by a British tongue. And now more missionaries come to Britain every year than ever leave its shores. Are we not a people of weak heart? A nation where the preaching and teaching of God's Word is not welcome, not appreciated as, as it once was. Are we not a nation who pays lip service to the Word of God and to the God of the Word, but who in heart and action are very, very far from Him? Are we not a nation who are steeped in sin? A nation where sin is celebrated? A nation where sin has many, many advocates in the corridors of power and beyond? Are we not guilty of treating our children with the same disdain in this generation as the Israelites did in theirs? Do we not also suffer or surrender our children to death and the devil so easily and readily? We abort them in the womb. We indoctrinate them in the classroom. We alienate them from the biblical model of a home at every twist and turn. We refrain from teaching them the truth of the Word of God, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little. Do we not have the same attitude to marriage and the marriage vows as Israel did? Are we not those who count as nothing the promise to stay together until death do us part, for better or for worse, for keeping ourselves for one other only? Do we not as a nation lust after love with anyone? It doesn't matter about gender. It doesn't matter about age. It doesn't matter about marital status. Love is love and everyone is fair game, we are told. Do we not allow to fall in deaf ears the warnings of God and His precious Word? And do we not as a nation, even the most spiritual amongst us, even the very saved amongst the nation, do we not allow ourselves to become so easily conditioned to accept sin? to excuse sin, to justify sin. We do so in our own lives. We do so when it comes to the sinful choices of friends and family. We do so when it comes to the sinful lifestyles of neighbors and work colleagues. Are we not a nation tonight who ought to be confounded just as Judah was? A nation who bears such shame. A nation ripe for the judgment of God. God, have mercy on us as a nation. God, have mercy on me as part of that nation. And oh, may God stir us up from our lethargy. May God stir us up from our unconcern. And may God burden our hearts to pray.
Pray for the spiritual health of our nation. Pray for a mighty outpouring of the Spirit of God in our nation. Pray for revival in our hearts, our homes, our churches, our towns, our cities, our regions, our entire country. Because God surely says to Britain as he did to Judah, you're headed for what for? Their resemblance. A resemblance which sadly echoes down to this generation. But notice thirdly, his restoration. His retribution, their resemblance, his restoration. Verses 53 through 63. This girl who had flourished into a woman, a beautiful woman, a woman indeed that this man who's characterized in this story had gone on to marry. To this woman, however, who went on to betray him in such a visible and a public manner. A woman who kept nothing back in her pursuit of more, more, more. Indeed, to this woman who had sinned more than any other woman known before her. This man, her husband, ultimately her savior, promised to restore her. Look in verse 53. When I shall bring again their captivity, the captivity of Sodom and her daughters, the captivity of Samaria and her daughters, then will I bring again the captivity of thy captives in the midst of them. Verse 55. When thy sister Sodom and her daughters shall return to their former estate, and Samaria and her daughters shall return to their former estate, then thy and thy daughters shall return to your former estate. Verse 60, Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with thee in the days of thy youth, and I will establish unto thee an everlasting covenant. Verse 62, I will establish my covenant with thee, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord. All of these verses are promises to restore. It's remarkable, isn't it? The tale has been a sordid tale. It's been a sleazy tale. Right the whole way from verse 1. It's been fraught with tragedy and devastation. It's been marked by sin and shame. But here we have a happy ending. God here is speaking of the restitution of all things. Something which is a common theme of the prophets. And this deals, in my view, primarily with the land. The cities of the land. I say that because this restoration must be enjoyed by future generations. The people who Ezekiel is ministering to are people who have heaped those coals of wrath upon their own heads. They would be forever the recipients of his divine judgment. And just as Jude reminds us in his book, 
that the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah were suffering the vengeance of eternal fire, so too those who are alive and well in Judah at this time would know for themselves the divine wrath of God upon them forever. Unbelieving Israel would be condemned. But these verses tell a tale of how from the wreckage and carnage that was evident all around, and even from the ashes of Sodom and Gomorrah, God was going to restore a nation. He was going to restore a people. He was going to restore a place from which his millennial reign will be executed. Now this should come as unsurprising to us in our studies, for already in our, uh, our studies in the Abrahamic covenant, we have saw how God promised a land to the people. And this included all that we have spoken of here in this chapter. The land of Judah, the southern kingdom. The land of Samaria, the northern kingdom. Even the land containing the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember, if you will, how God said in Genesis 13 and verse 14, as he spoke to Abraham, he commanded him to look northward, southward, eastward, and westward, for all the land which thou seest to thee will I give it unto thy seed forever. And that's an important statement. It indeed is one of the most important statements found in the Word of God when it comes specifically to deal with what we come to consider in the future weeks, that being the land covenant, the promise that God gave to Abraham and then further shone a spotlight on in the book of Deuteronomy, that unconditional statement to Israel as a people that theirs would be a land to dwell in forever. So despite sin and shame, Their sin and shame, God was faithful, would remain faithful to His Word, to His promise, and to His covenant. Genesis 17, in the verse 8, He says, I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And so God says to Israel, that was my promise to you in the days of your nativity, and that remains my promise to you even in days of sin and shame. You may have broken another covenant that I have made with you, that being the Mosaic covenant. You may have turned your back on me and on my word. You may have forsaken my law. You may have given your heart, your love, your worship to another. But I am the God who makes covenant, and I am the God who keeps covenant. And to you, I will always be faithful. And so we come to our next covenant, the land covenant. And then this we're going to see clearly that that which God reveals as being His plan, His desire for the nation of Israel, and ultimately His desire for the furtherance of His testimony in regards to His power and glory. And it's all confirmed in these words. I will establish my covenant with thee. Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with thee. I will allow you to return to your former estate. 
I will bring again the captivity of thy captives. But ending tonight, how about you? Perhaps this parable, as we have come to it, has hit a little close to home. Perhaps as you reflect on your story, you reflect upon days in which you wandered and strayed from the fold. You reflect upon weeks in which you indulged in things only ever designed to satisfy your own lusts and desires. You reflect upon months where your heart was hard. Your mind was captivated by everything other than spiritual things. When your walk was so obviously out of step with the commands and the appeals of God's Word. You reflect on years where in Bypath Meadow you frivolously wasted away your living lost in a spiritual wilderness. So far from God, you almost struggled to identify the way back home. Are you someone tonight who is here in person, but spiritually you're in the far-off country? Then surely this word comes at the appointed time to you. This comes as a word in season. For here in this parable, notice not only the condemnation of God upon sin, but here the repeated refrain of love. Here those words of love that are spoken to you. And remember that God is always married to the backslider. Remember that his love for you is unconditional. His promises to you are unconditional. So here and now, bring your shame. Bring your sin to the foot of the old rugged cross. Wash in the fountain that's filled with blood. Repent and turn back to God. Cast yourself upon his mercy and his grace. And remember, oh, remember the words of the marriage vow you entered into at the very moment of your salvation. In good times and in bad times. For better and for worse. Whether in the valley or on the mountaintop whether passing through the waters or going through the river or even walking through the fire, God committed to be with you. I will be with thee. Fear not, neither be thy dismayed, for I am thy God. Call unto me and I will answer thee. Cast thy burden upon me and I will sustain you. Seek me and you shall find me when you seek me with your whole heart. Walk thy before me and be thy perfect. 
For I will guide thee with mine eye. I will strengthen thee. I will uphold thee. Yes, even though you have been unfaithful to me, I will always be faithful to you. Why? Because I'm Jehovah. 